Hey Pulp Today fans, David Avalone here with, uh, I think this is our, our final episode. That was, a, that was a pause for dramatic effect while you all got really upset. It's our final episode before the December break while the plane passes over. December break, yeah. Uh, this will be the last one until probably the first week in January. And uh, just thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, what book, what whatever, and I was thinking about the whole Goofy is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate. It is, sure, why not? What isn't a Christmas movie, really? And uh, that made me think about Die Hard and what I believe was one of the inspirations for it. And so I'll start out. Uh, I've talked about Dashiell Hammett twice before on this show. He's I'm a, obviously a very big fan. We talked about how he invented existentialism before the French with the Flitcraft story in the Maltese Falcon. Uh, we read the first chapter of uh, Red Harvest, which I talked about has become the trope man-with-no-name character, his continental op, who morphs into Clint Eastwood, who morphs into... Yojimbo, even before Clint Eastwood, Toshiro Mofune. And one of the early stories featuring that character, The Continental Op, is in this collection, The Big Knockover by Dashiell Hammett. And it's got an introductory essay about Hammett by Lillian Hellman. And in typical Lillian Hellman form, she reports probably accurately that Dashiell Hammett said, Dad, don't write about me after I die. You'll end up only end up writing about you. Totally what she does. She only ends up writing about her. Putting in mind what Mary McCarthy said about her, which I won't repeat in case she has some relatives who might sue me. Lillian, not Mary. All of those old literary feuds to, to decide... The story I'm talking about today is called The Gutting of Coffinyal. I think I'm pronouncing Coffinyal correctly. C-O-U-F-F-I-G-N-A-L. Coffinyal is presented as kind of uh, a little bit Catalina Island, a little bit Coronado. Uh, it's connected to the mainland by a bridge, which Coronado is, Catalina is not. But like Catalina, it's, a, it's an enclave for the wealthy. Our hero, the Continental Operative, has been hired as a bodyguard for wedding presents at an expensive wedding. But then a bunch of crazy things happen. The power goes out, and the town appears to be under a... It's sort of the opposite of Die Hard in that it's it's a... Uh, it, it is a robbery, and it, it looks like a robbery, but it's actually being done by residents of the island who are uh, Russian emigres who are out of money and therefore they are pretending to be mere brigands so that they can rob all of their neighbors blind. Uh, our hero figures out who's behind it. They are represented in the story by a beautiful young princess. And the end of this story has one of the funniest, to me, it's funny, it's so hard-boiled, it's ridiculous, it has one of the funniest final lines, and it's also a dress rehearsal for the Maltese Falcon. At the end of the Maltese Falcon, our hero has fallen in love with Bridget O'Shaughnessy, even though he knows she's a murderer, 
and he arrests her anyway. He hands her over to police. This comes year, a few years before that, uh, but it has the same general feel. To set the scene, the Continental Op has figured out what's going on, has figured out who the culprits are, and he has cornered the princess and said, look, I'm a detective and you're a criminal and I'm going to arrest you. Again, very similar to the speech at the end of the Maltese Falcon, which this is the rough draft of. It's worth mentioning because it plays right into the punchline that uh, there is a, a 1930s trope character, 20s and 30s trope character, the uh, using the language of the time, the crippled newsboy. Apparently this was a common thing, or at least it was common in popular culture. Our hero has sprained his ankle chasing after the princess, and he has... In the course of chasing her and spraining his ankle, he comes upon a crippled newsboy who he has uh, talked to a few times in the story, and he gives the kid five bucks, if I remember correctly, and takes his uh, crutch so he can use it to chase bad guys. I'll take another drink while this uh, while this plane goes over. So much suspense. So our hero, stolen crutch has the princess cornered in her home, but he has foolishly not drawn his pistol. And she has basically said, I'll give you all the money, I'll give you a, a cut of the money, anything you want, just don't turn me on. Let me straighten this out for you, I interrupted. We'll disregard whatever honesty I happen to have, sense of loyalty to employers and so on. You might doubt them, so we'll throw them out. Now I'm a detective because I happen to like the work. It pays me a fair salary, but I could find other jobs that would pay more. Even $100 more a month would be $1,200 a year. Say $25 or $30,000 in the years between now and my 60th birthday. Now I pass up about $25 or $30,000 of honest gain because I like being a detective, like the work. And liking work makes you want to do it as well as you can. Otherwise there'd be no sense to it. That's the fix I am in. I don't know anything else. I don't enjoy anything else. Don't want to know or enjoy anything else. You can't weigh that against any sum of money. Money is good stuff. I haven't anything against it. But in the past 18 years, I've been getting my fun out of chasing crooks and tackling puzzles, my satisfaction out of catching crooks and solving riddles. It's the only kind of sport I know anything about, and I can't imagine a pleasanter future than 20-some more years of it. I'm not going to blow that up. She shook her head slowly, lowering it, so that now her dark eyes looked up at me under the thin arcs of her brows. You speak only of money, she said. I said you may have whatever you ask. That was out. I don't know where these women get their ideas. You're still all twisted up, I said brusquely, standing now and adjusting my borrowed crutch. You think I'm a man and you're a woman. That's wrong. I'm a manhunter and you're something that has been running in front of me. There's nothing human about it. You might just as well expect a hound to play tiddlywinks with the fox he's caught. We're wasting time anyway. I've been thinking the police or marines might come up here and save me a walk. You've been waiting for your mob to come back and grab me. I could have told you they were being arrested when I left them. That shook her. She had stood up. Now she fell back a step, putting a hand behind her for steadiness on her chair. An exclamation I didn't understand popped out of her mouth. Russian, I thought. But the next moment I knew it had been Italian. Put your hands up. It was Flippo's husky voice. 
Flippo stood in the doorway, holding an automatic. I raised my hands as high as I could without dropping my crutch, meanwhile cursing myself for having been too careless or too vain to keep a gun in my hand while I talked to the girl. So this is why she had come back to the house. If she freed the Italian, she had thought we would have no reason for suspecting that he hadn't been in on the robbery, and so we would look for the bandits among his friends. A prisoner, of course, he might have persuaded us of his innocence. She had given him the gun so he could either shoot his way clear or, what would help her just as much, get himself killed trying. While I was arranging these thoughts in my head, Flippo had come up behind me. His empty hand passed over my body, taking away my own gun, his, and the one I had taken from the girl. A bargain, Flippo, I said when he had moved away from me, a little to one side, where he made one corner of a triangle whose other corners were the girl and I. You're out on parole, with some years still to be served. I picked you up with a gun on you. That's plenty to send you back to the big house. I know you weren't in on this job. My idea is that you were here on a smaller one of your own, but I can't prove that, and I don't want to. Walk out of here, alone and neutral, and I'll forget I saw you. Little thoughtful lines grooved the boy's round, dark face. The princess took a step toward him. You heard the offer I made him just now? Well, I make that offer to you, if you kill him. The thoughtful lines in the boy's face deepened. There's your choice, Flippo. I summed it up for him. All I can give you is freedom from San Quentin. The princess can give you a fat cut of the profits and a busted caper with a good chance to get yourself hanged. The girl, remembering her advantage over me, went at him hot and heavy in Italian, a language in which I know only four words. Two of them are profane and the other two obscene. I said all four. The boy was weakening. If he had been ten years older, he'd have taken my offer and thanked me for it. But he was young, and she was, now that I thought of it, was beautiful. The answer wasn't hard to guess. But not to bump him off, he said to her in English, for my benefit. We'll lock him up in there, where I was at. I suspected Flippo hadn't any great prejudice against murder. It was just that he thought this one unnecessary, unless he was kidding me to make the killing easier. The girl wasn't satisfied with his suggestion. She poured more hot Italian at him. Her game looked surefire, but it had a flaw. She couldn't persuade him that his chances of getting away with the loot were good. She had to depend on her charms to swing him, and that meant she had to hold his eye. He wasn't far from me. She came close to him. She was singing, chanting, crooning Italian syllables into his round face. She had him. She shrugged. His whole face said yes. He turned. I knocked him on the noodle with my borrowed crutch. The crutch splintered apart. Flippo's knees bent. He stretched up to his full height. He fell on his face on the floor. He lay there, dead still, except for a thin worm of blood that crawled out from under his hair onto the rug. A step, a tumble, a foot or so of hand and knee scrambling put me within reach of Flippo's gun. The girl, jumping out of my path, was halfway to the door when I sat up with the gun in my hand. Stop! I ordered. I shan't, she said. But she did for the time at least. I am going out. You're going out when I take you. She laughed a low, pleasant laugh, low and confident. I'm going out before that, she insisted good-naturedly. I shook my head. How do you propose stopping me, she asked. I don't think I'll have to, I told her. You've got too much sense to try and run while I'm holding a gun on you. She laughed again, an amused ripple. I've got too much sense to stay, she corrected me. Your crutch is broken and you're lame. You can't catch me by running after me. You pretend you'll shoot me, but I don't believe you. 
You'd shoot me if I attacked you, of course, but I shan't do that. I shall simply walk out, and you know you won't shoot me for that. You'll wish you could, but you won't. You'll see. Her face turned over her shoulder, her dark eyes twinkling at me. She took a step toward the door. Better not count on that, I threatened. For answer to that, she gave me a cooing laugh and took another step. Stop, you idiot, I bawled at her. Her face laughed over her shoulder at me. She walked without haste to the door, her short skirt of gray flannel shaping itself to the calf of each gray wool-stockinged leg as its mate stepped forward. Sweat greased the gun in my hand. When her right foot was on the door sill, a little chuckling sound came from her throat. Adieu, she said softly, and I put a bullet in the calf of her leg. She sat down, plump. Utter surprise stretched her white face. It was too soon for pain. I had never shot a woman before. I felt queer about it. You ought to have known I'd do it. My voice sounded harsh and savage and like a stranger's in my ears. Didn't I steal a crutch from a cripple? So absurd. That's the gutting of Coffinial. I'm sorry that I spoiled the ending for you. Uh, but there's just something so funny about him using that as like, of course I'd shoot you. I stole this from a eight-year-old disabled kid selling newspapers. I find Hammett very funny. I, I, I know that, you know, some of the hard-boiled stuff is absolutely intended to be dead serious, and maybe that line is dead serious too, but I think there's a little humor in him categorizing himself like that. I'm a bad person. Of course I'll shoot a lady. I steal crutches from disabled boys. Uh, as to Die Hard, yeah, the, the the setup of a detective who's not supposed to be there running afoul of a crew of international terrorists who have decided to steal a whole bunch of money. It's not on Christmas. It does take place on a wedding. I think it's the princess's wedding day is the cover for this whole story. Anyway, hope you liked it. Uh, read all of Dashiell Hammett's short stories. They're not all great. They're not all... Certainly a lot of them are have offensive things in them by modern standards and honestly by the standards of the day but enjoy your holidays enjoy kentmas and kryptonica and have a happy new year i'll see you on sometime in january for more information visit pendantaudio.com thanks for listening